Oh, hi. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. Today we're talking to Ajua Tete. Ajua is a passionate educator and advocate in sexual and reproductive health and rights with specialties in comprehensive sexuality education. So we talked to Ajua about a bunch of stuff and specifically about sex safety and talking about sex safety. Um, so, yeah, to begin, Stephanie and I will interview Ajua. Then we'll adjust your questions about those topics and others. We'll do our quickies. Then uh, there'll be a tour update and a song from Bona Bona Bonabo to round out the episode. As always, we're so glad you're in this conversation with us. Call us, write to us, visit us on the webs at sexforsmartpeople.com. Enjoy. Our love is what we make of it. 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 Sex for smart people. That means you. Oh, hi. Welcome to Sex for Smart People. I'm Dave, and my preferred pronoun is he. I'm Stephanie, and I use she or they. Uh, my name is Ajua, and my preferred pronoun is she. Cool. Ajua. Oh, my goodness. I'm thrilled to have you here Yay! with us. Yay! I'm excited to be here, too. Thank you guys so much. Sexuality educator extraordinaire, badass activist. Um, we want to dive into the interview part with... Um, the same question how we always kick it off. What is your relationship to relationships? So I guess my relationship to relationships is I spend a lot of time talking about relationships. So, you know, whether it's um, talking about them professionally, but also talking about them personally too. But even just thinking about it, I, um, during my day job, sometimes I do workshops with high school students. And so I was doing a workshop with a, um, a ninth grade group and we we're talking about healthy relationships. And so just to kind of get it started off, we started talking about what are the different types of relationships that we can have with people. And so whether we're talking about romantic relationships or platonic or familial or chosen relationships that you have with other people or just interpersonal relationships, which I thought was great, is just recognizing that any person we have an interaction with that's sustained is we have some type of relationship with them. But I think kind of, especially in the work that I do is I feel like, um, I think a lot about how these different types of relationships that we have, how they, um, impact us in a lot of different ways. So whether it's like they lay the foundation for what some of these future relationships that we may have could look like. So whether it's like we're modeling the ones that we've seen before, or recreating the ones that we've seen before, or we're doing things to make sure that we have the polar opposite <laughs> of ones that we've seen, but also thinking about, um, how that's so impactful for us, even if it's like when I'm talking to ninth graders about like the idea of what they see as a healthy relationship too. Um, and so, you know, I think it's something that's both humbling, but frustrating sometimes, but also something that I think is surprising how impactful that can be. And so I feel like kind of what my job is as like a sexuality educator and someone who I feel like tries to help people achieve some type of sexual well-being from an individual to global level mm -hmm. is kind of, um, really just kind of giving people to lay the foundation to be able to have healthy relationships, whatever that may look like, whether it's sexual or not, but kind of leading them to this foundation to have pleasurable and safe, intimate relationships with people. So, yeah. So what are, what's the reaction from ninth graders and 10th graders about this sort of work? That you do? So, I mean, um, it's, it's really interesting. So I had, um, it's interesting when you talk to, ninth and 10th graders, especially like, and you're talking about relationships and what's a sign of a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of times people are able to kind of identify those things that seem like their core things. So like having trust, having respect, having um, open communication, having honesty, and a lot of different things like that. 
one of the ones that I haven't really seen a lot of um, young people bring up sometimes is equality. And I think that's interesting too. And so just for example, I had a young girl that was like, so, you know, me and my partner, we're going to coordinate with each other in terms of how we get dressed every day. So three days a week, we're going to match. And then you can look crazy the other two days <laughs> but when you're with me on my time. It's the three days. And it's interesting because I feel like, you know, sometimes we do have these these images of what an ideal healthy relationship looks like but of course in practice that can look very different and so you know feeling like you know having that respect and having that love sometimes means texting someone 24 7 like that's what that feels like to you in a certain context and so I think that sometimes I see this um, what can sometimes seem like a disconnect between what the ideal can be and what it looks like in practice, but I feel like I also at the same time hear some really awesome things, but even like to hear ninth graders that may not necessarily be thinking about relationships be like, these are core things and I understand how important those are to a relationship. Huh. So. What, um, what is the, the, the range of people that you work with as an educator? Great. So what does your day to day yeah. work look like? So, um, if I'm at my job, I literally can talk to anyone from age 12 <laughs> to someone who's 75. Mm -hmm. And so I work in a community health center. And so kind of what I do is providing um, education and counseling on a lot of different topics related to sexuality from like sexual pleasure to sexually transmitted infections and testing and condom use and partner communication um, around those different types of things. But then, you know, um, with my activists and after work at it, I still can kind of talk to people a lot of different ages, not as much young people, it seems like. It's more so like college students and, and older adults too. But, um, you know, on a day-to-day, -day, I can start my day off with providing options counseling to a girl who's 16 and isn't really sure if she wants to be pregnant and has a partner that's not really as present as she really wants to be in that in that process or you know I can end the day with getting someone started on birth control and you know feeling really awesome and excited about that about not being able to have sex and being able to enjoy it without feeling the fear of pregnancy or other things like that so it can be it can run the gamut it can be very emotional days it can be fun days but um, I do love the folks that I work with whether it's in a kind of the clinical context or the activist context you're actually a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I was, I was going to go there. Yeah. Was say, so, how did you how did you become a superhero? Or how did you how did you just all the work that you do is so yeah. important and noble? What lit the fire into your ass to do this particular kind of? Work? I mean, it's kind of hard, and so I say this that like both my my I, I feel like I kind of get my activist spirit from both my my parents <laughs> in a certain way, especially my dad, like my dad is from Ghana. Um, and so he wasn't born here. And so he's a permanent resident here, but he doesn't vote. And so he's, but he's very, very, very invested in like political things that happen in our country. And also like how people in our country and the policy that we have have affected people abroad as well, especially people in his own country as well. And so I feel like I kind of was born with that in my ear of being like critical of certain things, but looking at it kind of more analytically about what goes on. Um, but from a sexuality standpoint, I feel like it's kind of like my mom told me what sex was when I was eight and I was, people were talking about it on the bus. And so I went home and I was like, mom, what's sex? 
And then she explained to me, and I'm like, ew, that's gross. And then probably like two years later, I was like, oh, this is fascinating. And so, <laughs> you know, right, exactly. It was like, hmm. And so kind of from that point. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of what it was. And I was like, this is fascinating. And so I think, you know, I was one of those kids that grew up with cable. And so, you know, like real sex and all those other things were on. And I think I had a very intellectual curiosity about sex. So I kind of been that sexuality resource person for everyone, probably like throughout most of <laughs> my pubescent on um, life. And so it's just something that I feel like is so important. Like sexuality is something that we use as one of the greatest marketing tools, but we say it's gross and it's horrible and it's bad and you should only save it for people when you're married and all these other things that are really problematic. But it's such a powerful thing. And I feel like the fact that we don't talk about it as much, um, at least in the context of whether we're starting to talk to young people about sexuality. So even it just explaining parts of your body in a way so that they understand or like girls understanding that they have a vulva and that the vagina is just one part and not and not the whole part but that you know we don't really kind of set that up from very early on and so kind of feeling like this is something that a, a lot of people sometimes don't feel comfortable talking about and feeling like I I feel okay doing it and I feel like it's important so it's kind of just been a thread through pretty much everything I've done <laughs> since college on um, whether it's in an activist context or working within research or doing direct education um kind of raging against the machine about sexuality has kind of been something that's core to who I am. Rad. Yeah. And when did you realize you were going to make it official and you're like, okay, this isn't just an interest. This is going to be my, my money job. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I want to say that. Um, so when I was 10, I decided I wanted to be a psychologist. That was my plan. That was what I stuck to until I was 25. So when I started college, I started my major, um, which was human development at then, but it was kind of like more integrating aspects of anthropology, sociology, psychology, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, um, and so I had always known that I maybe wanted to be a therapist, but I wanted to do something else related to sexuality too. And so um, my plan was to do like a PhD in clinical psych, and then I'd get a supplemental like master's degree in sexuality, because I knew that's what was going to happen. So. Therapist stuff kind of fell off a little bit. I still have elements of it where I think about it, but um, it was more so knowing that, okay, I couldn't figure out the psychology part and the PhD part first. So I was like, I'll go with the master's. And so I did a master's in sexual and reproductive health education. And so I was like, this makes sense for me. Like it's something that's present in my life and it was either be a psychologist or be a chemist. And <laughs> so I chose with that kind of psychology, sexuality route. That's kind of what made sense for me so it's kind of just something that naturally evolved kind of i guess throughout college at least and you're now officially a master of sex yes um what in in your activist and or educational work which probably is a little bit one in the same yeah. um, <laughs> what do you feel is the most common either misconception or challenge mm -hmm. that you butt up against that's a good question um I think sometimes, well, one, I feel like it's it's one thing where I feel like there's um, people are coming at. So a lot of times in the, in the in the clinic that I work with, I feel like a lot of times people are coming to us in a state of not fully crisis, but, you know, there's a large concern. So, you know, people are coming to us with concerns about pregnancy or they're concerned about 
sexually transmitted infections or what have you. And I think that the biggest problem is I feel like some of these conversations that I feel like I wish had happened early on for people and that people had access to that younger. So even just talking about basic things that, well, I say it's basic, but it's not really, but talking about consent, for example, mm. and even having that conversation with children and it doesn't have to necessarily be within the context of of sex but even just being that you know when you're interacting with another person having that understanding that you know you need to seek permission from that to engage with that person in x type of way and that there should be a conversation about it rather than we just make assumptions about what it looks like or what that person wants and so i think that i oftentimes it's kind of like that lack of having that foundation even just like basic things about people's bodies so like i have girls that um have been sexually active for years, but don't know or don't um, have an understanding of how their periods relate to sex. So she's like, if I'm having sex, I should be getting my period. And I was like, it's not really that simple. There's a lot more, <laughs> there's a lot more complication between that. And so um, even just like understanding about their bodies, like I have so many girls that don't know they have three holes rather than two, you know, mm -hmm. for example, is so not understanding that the urethra and the vagina are two different holes. And so when I'm talking about the NuvaRing birth control method, they're like, Am I going to pee on this? And I'm like, no, actually you're not because it's a completely different hole. So I feel like there are these things that can be at the foundation of even just having a pleasurable and kind of open conversation with people that aren't there. And so that's why I feel like it is so important that we're starting sexuality education very young, whether it's as people who are with parents or if, if you're any type of caregiver interaction with young people too. I mean, that continues through school and other things like that. What does the world of sex education in public schools in New York look like at the moment? So that's a great question, too, is that we are trying to figure that out right now. And so New York is good in that there's actually a mandate for a comprehensive sexuality education at uh, a couple points, both in um, middle school and high school, just so two points. And so that's given an opening for a lot of organizations that do comprehensive sexuality education to come in. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of schools that don't mandate sexuality education. They don't mandate that it be comprehensive. So in New York, that's a great thing is that we do have that. And so um, that means Can you that, define comprehensive? Here? There we go. Absolutely. Yeah. So comprehensive sexuality education means that you're both getting information on contraception as well as abstinence and sexually transmitted infections, but also kind of broader things too, like healthy relationships, anatomy, um, talking about sexual orientation, talking about other things too. So um, at least in New York, it's great that that mandate's there. The problem with mandates is that we have to figure out how those are really being implemented. So, you know, we're not really clear on what that's looking like in terms of schools. And what was happening before is that there are these uh, curricula that were actually recommended by the Department of Education, but people weren't really aware um, that they had access to them for free and that people could be trained to actually use them. So this was right before the mandate. And so it's like there are resources available, but people don't actually know about them. And granted, the curriculum themselves, they, they could have a little bit more work, definitely, but... Um, so I think it's improving for sure is like having that opening where the idea is that people know that this is something that's important that has to be implemented in mm -hmm. schools, but figuring out what that's actually looking like in the ground. And for those that do uh, know and feel that this is very, very important uh, in what would, but maybe haven't found their way in, in a way to engage or yeah. support that kind of work, whether in a policy way or a right. lifestyle way, what would you say, What what is a good entry point for fighting this good fight. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that like you have the option of one is working with organizations that are actually organizing around comprehensive sexuality education. So 
Planned Parenthood of New York, NARAL, other folks like that that are doing What's that. What's NARAL? NARAL is, I feel like it actually stands for the National Abortion... I can't even remember what the other letters stand for, but it's an organization that works a lot around um, abortion rights. And I was like, I realize I don't know that. I probably need to look that up. Um, but there are a couple um, uh, different organizations that are working around comprehensive sexuality education um, within New York City. So partnering with those, whether in a volunteer capacity too. But I think also just having conversations. So um, a lot of times even parents don't really necessarily know what their young folks are learning in schools. And so mm-hmm. prior to this mandate, a lot of parents actually thought, I think the statistic is 77% of parents actually thought that their kids were learning comprehensive sexuality education. And so really asking and figuring out what people are learning within schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's an opportunity to have conversations, whether at PTA meetings, other things to talk about that and be like, we want to have more investment in this mm-hmm. and be able to really understand um, what information you're giving to our, our young folks. Yeah. Yeah. And I see all of this, even in New York, where it seems like the road is slightly easier than maybe yeah. elsewhere. I do see this work as a bit of an uphill battle. Yeah. And where, if any place, do you, or what, what keeps you going from day to day? And, what are you most invest most passionately invested in? What gives you hope? Here? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think actually talking to people and knowing that there's a thirst for this knowledge, like you know that there is a thirst for spaces to really talk about sexuality in an open and comprehensive way, and so that you feel like you have the opportunity to ask questions where there aren't any stupid questions, or you know they have the opportunity to talk about even just relationships. For example, in that workshop that I was talking about before, and so when the this is a science class, and the teacher introduced the fact that I was going to be talking about relationships, this girl was like, "Yes!" <laughs> so it was so it was awesome. I was like, "Yes!" I'm happy you're excited too. But you know, I feel like that's representative of feeling like, especially like it's something you may talk about with your friends, but usually there's not a teacher in front of the classroom that's talking to you about having relationships and saying that maybe it's okay for you as a young person to be able to do that. Um, and so I think what's motivating is seeing how people respond to being able to have these conversations too, but also knowing that like when people do polls and people do research that people want this, Mm -hmm. they want to be able to get all the information they have. So whenever they decide to, or if they are sexually active, that they can make sure that they're doing it safely and healthily and pleasurefully. (laughs) So yeah. Pleasurefully. Yes. Cheers. I like that new word. Yeah. Okay, so on to questions from listeners. Um, But before we dive into questions with Ajua, we are going to start a new thing because we're so excited and passionate to involve more voices in all of these conversations. We're going to start a thing called crowdsource questions. And so we're going to share a question from a listener today. And then in two episodes, we will address that with our guest. And we are hoping that a lot of people will uh, write us and call us with your thoughts on uh, on this question. We would love, love, love to hear from you. And we will read several of the responses that we receive in the episode. So for this particular question, if you write, write to us or call us by December 7th, it can be uh, included in our 2013. discussion. 2013. Woohoo, yes. December 7th, 2013. <laughs> so our very first source question is... I'm a straight man. Huh? Is there a theme song? God's no. question. That's yeah. it. That's, that's the theme song. Brilliant. Okay. Uh, great. Let's all sing it. God's question. Yeah. 
great. Okay, so here it is. First one, it is. I'm a straight man. I want my life to be abundant with romantic possibilities. But I'm also very nervous about approaching women in a romantic way, unless it's an internet certified date. I'm extremely nervous about making women feel harassed. What's the line between fun flirting and creating a hostile environment? I think I have a sense of it, but I also know that straight men consistently think that they're just being fun and flirty when they are actually making the women around them feel uncomfortable. When is it okay to start talking to a cute stranger? So, listeners, we ask you, when is it okay to start talking to a cute stranger? Uh, please call us and write to us by December 7th. Let us know what you think. Crowdsource question! Yeah! yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, on to questions we're going to talk about today. Sure. Dave. Yeah. So here's a question we got. I just ended an eight-year relationship, and I'm starting to date again. Mostly women I meet on OkCupid. I want to be smart and respectful about safety, but I always feel a little weird asking people when they have last been tested. When is the best time to bring this up when when you're hanging out with someone new? Too soon? I think it sounds creepy, like coming on too strong. Wait too long, and it feels weird because you're already in the heat of the moment. Please help. Um... That's a, I feel like that's a question that people ask a lot, um, is, you know, feeling awkward about bringing up the conversation about like testing and safer sex or what have you. And, mm-hmm. and in my ideal world, I, I kind of sometimes wish that we could change the culture around that too. Cause I feel like sometimes, um, sometimes we see, uh, SCD testing and other things like that is something that you do when you feel like something is wrong Mm -hmm. rather Mm -hmm. than just a part of just making sure that you're healthy overall. And so I feel like, um, I wish it wasn't seen as something that creates awkwardness with someone, but more so something that is a natural part of having open communication when you're interacting with someone, but also that that's having an understanding of what your values are around that is a core part of like, gauging your compatibility with someone else too is that making sure that you know you're on the same page about testing um or you're making sure that you're on the same page about what you think makes sense in terms of using protection and other things like that that's something that you want to be a part of the picture um and so i think that uh you know it it really does depend and so in, in the i know in the question is like in the heat of the moment it can be too late or what have you and definitely it can be because it's hard to be like so how about that condom use at that point when you're like two seconds from already doing it or, you know, something like that. And so I think it's something that we always say in an ideal context that you have a conversation about earlier on. And so, um, you know, it doesn't have to be like, hi, how are you? What do you think about using condoms? Um, but, That's always worked really well for me. Right. And, and I think too, I have one on right now. That's why. Always That's what I mean too. Yes, absolutely. That's also what I tell folks too. I feel like regardless of your gender, I feel like having protection on you doesn't, to me, doesn't indicate an assumption that you're going to necessarily have sex at that moment. It's just that you are prepared in the event that you do. Um, and so... I don't think it necessarily has to be your introductory question to someone that you're talking about, Mm -hmm. but I do think that um, it can be something that you have a conversation about just to see where you are just from a standpoint of, is this something that you value period? And I don't think the question, I think some people can read the question to mean that it has to mean assumptions that you think that you're going to get it. But like I said, Mm -hmm. even if you're framing it as this is something that's important to me in general, when I'm thinking about whatever type of relationship that I'm engaging with in someone. Mm -hmm. And so I just want to make sure that you're on the same page with me. And whenever that comes up, if it does, high five. (laughs) I feel strongly that if you have that conversation and someone is 
resistant to it, then they're not you good enough have for sex you. With them. Right, right, <laughs> right, 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 right. Not. Um, and I really love what you're saying that it's not like a when do you pull the trigger kind of thing, mm-hmm. but it's just a a part of the flow of navigating yeah. any kind of new connection. And and I do also know that that's it's easier to talk about in a theoretical way, and Absolutely. that it often it often does feel trickier than that. Yeah. I mean, I know. Um, some people have boundaries that they, the first time that they're just making out and rolling around with somebody, they yeah. definitely keep all clothes on right, and then right. you don't, then it, you can kind of hold off on that conversation a little right. bit if that's just right. something like you met at a party. But, um, I feel like this is toughest when you're, um, even if you're not casual about anybody, if it's going to be a, sh- a shorter term thing, I feel right. like. This, this is toughest to navigate, but no less important. And, Absolutely. Um, and another resource that I just want to piggyback on what you were talking about, uh, my friend uh, Reed Mahalko, sex educator, he mm-hmm. has that um, safer sex elevator speech. Yeah. So if you Google uh, read about sex, uh, that's R-E-I-D, that's his name in the elevator speech. It's funny because it strikes a lot of people as like, that's so comprehensive. How could we do that? But yet I feel like it sets a great standard. It's a good thing to check in with. Yeah. I'd love to read it. It yeah. is... Um, <laughs> That's uh, reads safer sex elevator speech. Number one, when were you last tested for STDs? What did you get tested for? And what was the status of those tests? Number two, what is your current relationship status and sexual orientation? And what, if any, relationship agreements do you have that the other person should know about? Three, what are your safer sex protocols and needs? Four, one or two things that you like that you know you like sexually or might want to do with this person. Five, one thing you know you don't like sexually or that you aren't up for today. Six, optional quick rundown of any risky sexual things you've done since you were last tested. And seven, last step, then ask the other person, and how about you? And listen to what they say and how they say it. And I love that. And he suggests too the the way that he he writes this and he contextualizes in in kind of a, a, a silly and snarky way, but it um he advises just like practice it like that we don't that it is it can be uncomfortable to talk about and we don't um we just don't necessarily do this as a matter of Mm -hmm. course until we're feeling like there are such stakes and we really care about somebody and so if you just kind of like it may sound silly but practice talking asking those questions talking about your answers to them alone in your room it may be a little easier when you really care about somebody potential discomfort of not having this conversation is significantly higher than the discomfort of having this conversation i mean i think it could be both really because i i do think too like for example with practicing it like i in my in my clinic i'll actually role play with people if they want to about how do you have this conversation with that person because even if we write our bullet points it helps to actually verbally say out loud okay this is what i'm gonna say how do you respond if someone offers you x y and z too but i agree with you it definitely oftentimes feeling like okay i really want to talk about this thing and i haven't talked about it yet and oh god we're getting close to this there's a lot of discomfort with that too but i know that you know if that tone hasn't been set for having that open communication for the first part. And again, like there's so much stigma still around testing and other things like that. And sometimes even condom use too, it's associated with people feeling like there's dishonesty there or that you have something or what have you. And so mm-hmm. sometimes just throwing that conversation out there from the get go can, people can feel like it sets a tone that can be negative. And so I feel like mm-hmm. contextualizing it, like I said before, I think mm-hmm. is helpful in terms of 
this is something that's helpful for me and I want to make sure that we're both safe and also yeah. understanding that my health is important and I value your health as well. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that we're on the same page that, you know, I think it'd be great if we went together to get tested or, you know, I think it'd be great if we went together and got condoms. But I like the elevator speech because it kind of has those elements of talking about the personal things that you need to talk about. So mm -hmm. like, what are things that you're uncomfortable with? What are the things that you are talking about protection or what have you too? And then also, um, talking about pleasure and what yeah. you enjoy and so having that conversation beforehand helps so that there's not as much fumbling and maybe disappointment later on um, and so I think that we kind of have a culture where we kind of want the immediate great um, uh -huh. kind of like positive experience and I think that having that investment earlier on can make for a more pleasurable yeah. experience later so it doesn't even have to be like okay let's set up our meeting here's our agenda. We're going to talk about these things. It can, you can make it a more fluid conversation. And I do think that is the, with, with the elevator speech, it does yeah. kind of frame it as like, this is that moment mm -hmm. where I really do appreciate what you're saying that it's, um, it's, it's fluid. It's, mm -hmm. it's in, in the course of, of, of navigating things. Um, I just like the specificity that Absolutely he includes no. there. But, um, so I guess in, just getting back to this question of like, when's too early or when's too soon. Mm -hmm. Um, three hours. Um, that, like, I, I hear you're answering it very holistically, which I love, but I think there is a moment when you know, like, it's somewhere between meeting someone and feeling attracted to them mm -hmm. and when you're naked with them that you're like, oh, these th things are going this way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Whether yeah. that's at the, at the night, at that night at the party or, right. or years after being friends with them right. or after you've been dating them for three months or whatever, whenever is right for you. I think you know. I think I, I think that that when there's an investment in having a a sexual or physically intimate bond, everybody has a sense of that. Right. If or if you don't, on. start cultivating that sense. Right. Right. Definitely. Or asking asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's. Um, I mean, that's the thing. Is that I, it's another thing where you're kind of setting these boundaries. Where if the fact that you're asking about it is something that turns off that person that could just be clear of a Great another rift. Right, right. <laughs> I know of a rift that probably would come up later on is that maybe you're not on that same page. And so asking questions of being like, I think you're right. There's definitely a point where you're like, I feel like it's going down this road. What can I do to kind of prepare for this? And um, I, I think that ideally the person with that you're having this conversation with, you're hoping that it's coming from a place of like a good place rather than like predatory. I want to just make sure, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know how, how people read it, but I, I do think that, um, you kind of have to trust your intuition too, and, and yeah. communicate with people, um, and not be afraid to communicate. So doing whatever that internal work is to kind of get to that point. And, oh man, I find it so sexy. If anyone beats me to that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. no. <laughs> yeah. no, absolutely. I loved it. Like even just, I, with the ex partner that I had, like, we literally like, we're like, so what do you feel comfortable doing? And he's like, okay, this, I feel comfortable with this. And this is like just negotiating that before it actually happens. Like, and I was like, I know I talk about this all the time, like this ideal scene, but I'm like, it really just happened right Yay. now, guys. I'm like, yes. <laughs> so you can do that. And it doesn't have to be like, oh God, this is ruining the moment. Um, it doesn't, cause it wasn't in the moment. It was before the moment. And so and that's what The helps. more of us that just make a habit about being open Absolutely. about this and being, being awesome and not awkward about talking about this, the easier it's it becomes for everyone. Change. Yeah, and definitely. So let's all be on board with that. Absolutely. Totally. I want to grump on something that you brought up earlier though, about the, about it testing being for when 
not as a general health practice, but for yeah. when something's wrong. And how oh, New York yeah. City recently changed their testing um, policy where they'll only test you at the health clinics if you are showing symptoms of STI. Oh, no. You cannot go in and get uh, screenings if you are just a healthy, sexually active person. They only will test yeah. you. Yeah. Um, and that, that really needs to change back. That's yeah. a budget cut that needs to be... We need to figure out a way to reverse that because that's yeah. really bad. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing I will say is that... Um, there are definitely other clinics that will still definitely sure. like that may be sliding scale and other folks that will do that for you. Um, even if you don't are presenting with symptoms, but that's the thing. I mean, it's, it's speaking to kind of a larger societal thing too, is that, you know, one of the first things that um, people sometimes will throw off is when it's talking about healthcare cuts and, and sexually transmitted infections, especially sexual health, because yeah. it's kind of that icky weird thing that we don't want to talk about. If it's not specifically within the context of HIV specific then i feel like just more broader thinking about sexually transmitted infections that oftentimes that can be something but even with hiv i feel like funding sometimes is is dropping Mm -hmm. off in that and that we're in a time where funding feels scarce and so people want to prioritize where it's important but not recognizing that investing in health overall but including Mm -hmm. your sexual health because it's not like a separate part of your body (laughs) it's still a part of you as a whole thing that investing in that actually is beneficial for people in terms of you know, their ability to invest in other things in their life, whether it's school, whether it's work and other things is so that having great health overall is helpful in people's productivity. Mm-hmm. And so, and so if you're going to go for a dollar, investing in someone's health actually makes more sense <laughs> <laughs> financially, even if you don't see it immediately. And so. I know everybody's different, but Adra, what's the standard for like, how often should people get tested? Great question. So, um, most folks, um, Ideally, if people should be getting tested around like every six months or so, it really depends on how many partners you have. Um, so, you know, if people have more frequent partners, it could be better for people to get tested every three months or so. Um, I don't, I don't feel like there should be like a this is a strict number, and, and ideally, it should be if you have three partners in six months and you have to get tested every th- I mean I feel like it's kind of just like making sure you're getting tested somewhere between that three to six months, and then sometimes if people are. Um, if they if they say they're in a monogamous relationship, they recommend they get tested every year. But I tell mm-hmm. people every six months anyway, regardless of yeah. what folks situation, if they feel like um, they need to do it every three months too. So yeah. so yeah, so doing that. And also sometimes it's because of what used to be happening. For example, if you're talking about folks that have vaginas and uteruses and other things is that you would have to get a pap smear. And so the pap smear is something that people were getting every year. But now yeah, yeah. Um, up until you turn 31, folks are getting it every three years, unless you have an abnormal pap. So. I'm piggybacking questions on this person's question. Yeah. But one other <laughs> thing, what is the, I mean, like I have a good sense in New York City of like where I go to get tested. And, yeah. and it's, it's, I pay on a sliding scale and all that. Right. But like um, whether you're in New York City or if you're somewhere else, in the country yeah. uh, or even in the world, I guess, but what are steps that people can take to, to learn yeah. where best to get tested and what if they can't afford it? Definitely. That's a great um, thing to look into too. So like, for example, the CDC has um, places where you can look and Center see. Center for Disease Control. Yeah, Center for Disease Control. Definitely. Um, there are different organizations like uh, bedsider.org. Also it's focused specifically on uh, birth control, but what they have a listing of is different family planning clinics. And so that's places where, whether it can be um, regardless of folks, gender at times people can go and get um, low cost or sliding scale, at least um, sexual and reproductive healthcare too. So I feel like a lot of times, even if you go through the route of looking for HIV testing too, is that people can find other places where they can, um, find things on sliding scale at least if they need to. So, Absolutely. yeah, cool. 
the internet is your friend, <laughs> at least in that sense, <laughs> in terms of finding places. And of course, there are Planned Parenthoods in every place too. And so um, those are our options for folks too. Cool. Right? Yeah. Next question. How can I learn to love my vagina? <laughs> so, um, and, and the thing about loving, loving vaginas is that I, again, like I was talking about before, is that even um, when we refer to what is called the vulva, we refer to it as a vagina. And that's possible most of the time because, A, for most of people's lives, they may have been taught not to call it the vagina as is. Like <laughs> You may have other names for it, whether it's for JJ or you have PP or other, like, you know, we have all these different kinds of, right, or, or other, right. There's all these kind of, like, more fun, more accessible names that folks have for referring to... Uh, referring to their genitals and you know a lot of times in sex education people talk about how it's important for people to know the actual names mm -hmm. of, of their body parts too but regardless if you have a vulva I feel like in life you're not really taught to love it you're taught that it does weird things like it could smell funny and it can squirt out blood and you know babies bodily can fluids. go through there right other bodily fluids or even not being taught about bodily fluids that like that like discharge at certain points can be normal that it like throughout someone's menstrual cycle that your amount of discharge that you have changes I didn't learn that until I was in college I was like 21 when I learned that and for a long time I was like oh my god I'm weird what's going on I don't know what blah and so it's like you're not taught those types of things and so I don't feel like you're not given <laughs> you're not giving a very strong foundation to love your vulva to begin with, you know uh -huh. what I mean? But there's so many amazing things that I've done. All those things that we just talked about are amazing. It's self-cleaning. It can accommodate uh -huh. babies. It can accommodate a whole lot of things, whatever you want to put inside your vagina, <laughs> other things like that. And, you know, safely, consensually, all those things uh -huh. too. But it's, it's pretty amazing. And I think that, you know, sometimes it's a matter of even just physically what it looks like that people don't realize mm -hmm. that you know when we're talking about labia and the lips that you know some people's outer lips are shorter than their inner lips and other things mm -hmm. and so you know I think sometimes it helps just to actually see things and so for example if you're if most of your exposure to um to a vulva is through like pornography for example or if mm -hmm. maybe you saw your mom or something like that or what have you you don't really have a a clear sense of the diversity so mm. there's like different things like there's books out there that are like have just like I think that there's one called Petals for example that just has pictures of different vulvas mm -hmm. like throughout the entire and you just see the diversity of it and what that actually looks like and I think that's helpful for people to actually know that what I think is abnormal is not normal and I feel like that's a lot of where that yeah, comes from sometimes yeah. is not loving it is that even for example when I'm talking about the Nuvering birth control method with folks they kind of freak out like oh god I have to touch my vagina and I was like we let all sorts of other things go in there but our own finger and our own <laughs> our own body is something that's a problem for us to yeah. even touch that and so you know getting more comfortable with it so I totally recommend all like my patients and things like that I'm like feel comfortable doing practice masturbate mm -hmm. other things too so that you have an understanding of how it works and what it looks like and knowing that it's still all good and beautiful and great I love that. And I, um, my personal journey with sexuality, as is no secret, has been one of extreme shame to extreme celebration. Yeah, and yeah. Um, so um, I had a long journey with this too. And yeah. I guess just to add on to the cool sciencey things about the, the awesomeness of vulvas and vaginas, I remember when I learned about the clitoris as part of the clitoral yes. network. Yes. Holy shit. <laughs> that was like, yeah. um, I think I first learned from the whole lesbian sex book, but there's yeah. also some good talk about it in, um, she comes first to thinking man's guide to, pl to pleasuring a woman. Um, 
just talking about how the the clitoris, which part of this question is about vagina, which we think being yeah. vulva and vagina, but yeah. it it extends like all the way back to mm-hmm. the vaginal opening, even like doesn't like cradle the ureth- urethra as well and there are so many different it has legs <laughs> that <laughs> extend through the lips so it's like a lot longer than what people you just see the nub that's a clitoris but not recognizing that you know that even through whether it's like penetration or other things like that 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 can be stimulated too yeah. so yeah but just how amazing and like yeah. thinking about pleasure is not just like located to that one place but like yeah. reverberating oh. throughout the whole network and beyond that to like i love to, to extend what you said earlier about the vagina and vulva is part of like the whole, the whole being. Yeah. I guess something else practically that I've, I've read about and, and practiced of it is just like trying to fall in love with your whole body more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And absolutely. knowing that, that the, that your genitalia is, is just like one, one awesome part. part of yeah. you. And that I think, I think for men too, but I think especially absolutely. for women, like the whole, whole body feels so connected and connected to pleasure and so things like I know again this can probably feel silly to do and yet can be really awesome in practice to um just to get to know your whole self better including masturbating but not just masturbating even like light candles listen to music and like decide to fall in love with your left hand Mm -hmm. and then (laughs) maybe the next time extend like and just like and just like look at it in the candlelight you know touch it in different ways see what feels good to you and then maybe move on from there to get your whole arm and then maybe include your breasts next time and then um that's i think um there are so many different variations obviously of what that could look like and it can feel like methodical in a silly way i don't mean to prescribe like everyone go home and fall in love with their left hand but just i think that that for me it just like embracing my whole body yeah. made me comfortable with my sexuality and my genitalia much right. more so there was something you were involved with stephanie a couple of years ago the reality show at nyu mm. which was this really liz gr- suedo's yeah this really great years. show that um liz suedos and and current students present to incoming freshmen mm-hmm. and it's sort of about how you know, an introductory quick show on how to be a college and it covers everything from like how to be a good roommate and set yourself a budget and, mm-hmm. um, and how to talk about politics and be with weird people and sexuality. Mm-hmm. But there's one song that really sticks out to me from all those years ago. It was somebody just like, you know, like touching their body and saying, I will love my stupid fucking body if it kills me. Uh, <laughs> and how, and what a gorgeous uh, thing that was. Just sing that over and over. I love my like, stupid fucking body if it kills me. You know, it's yeah. true. And they're like slapping themselves and singing it like rock stars. It's so good. Yeah. 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 Learn to love your body. Your body's, your body's lovely. Yeah. It, it is. I mean, it's, it's hard sometimes when, you know, you get messages that it's not <laughs> a lot when it doesn't look like X or it doesn't look like Y or doesn't look like most of the bodies that you see. Oh, partners or, have expectations. Right. That oh, absolutely. Like yeah. And so that these kind of, these insecurities can come from very different like ways in terms of why we feel the way that we do, but it is like super powerful and be like, I love it and not, not in spite of, or because I have X, Y, and Z and that, you know, I have this thing that's different than other people's, or maybe one of my, my lips is longer than the other one, or, you know, (laughs) you know, whatever the difference is, is that, you know, I don't like when people do this, but I like when people do that. So I think embracing kind of the diversity that we have as folks is important and loving your body is important. So I think that, you know, even like, even if it's, whether it's focusing on hand, but just feeling comfortable and getting a sense to just sit and just like sit in yourself and like Uh nudity and other things just to be like, I'm okay. (laughs) And to know that you can still be okay is important too. So, and exploring it and also exploring it to 
with partners of that you choose, it kind of helps with that too, is that you test it out with yourself and then you're like, okay, I can do this with another person too and still feel okay with it. Yeah. So, yeah. All the best Steps. to the person who wrote in this question. Yeah. We all love your vagina. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you do too. I hope at some point you figure out how to. Yeah. 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 Next question. Uh, hey, Dave and Stephanie and Ajua. I'm married and I just found out that my wife cheated on me. She had unprotected sex with another man while on a business trip. This was extremely difficult for both of us, but we are on our way toward working through it emotionally. My main point of confusion is about safety. What if she caught some STD from another man? How and when can we be sure that we're both clean? So, um, one, I, you know, I, I love that there's a part in that, that they're working through that emotionally too, because I think, you know, if this, it's one thing, if you guys already have that expectation of what your relationship is like, and it's open and that we can have other partners, it's different if that's not there. Um, and that hasn't been a part of the conversation and that oftentimes it does require an emotional component to it too, of figuring out how do you guys get back to a place where you feel okay? So, um, Definitely, that's good that there's work on that, too. In terms of um, figuring out about the sexually transmitted infections or what have you, is that, um, you know, so it can be very different from a technical standpoint uh, in terms of when people get tested. So every sexually transmitted infection can have a, a certain window period, for example. So, um, you know, it can range from a, like one to two weeks to even 12 weeks in certain situations. And so oftentimes what happens is that we have... Um, we have folks that have had unprotected sex and they come into the clinic and they're like, I had unprotected sex yesterday and <laughs> I need to figure out what happened. And so the thing with that is that, you know, we tell them it's great and wonderful that you're here and it's great that, you know, people respond to that. They recognize that there's a risk there and kind of following through in that sense. Um, but, you know, with that window period, that can be a problem sometimes is that it may not necessarily show up right away a day later in terms of what's going on in terms of um, if that person did potentially contract an, an infection or what have you. So um, even if they come in that day, though, we still do the testing because perhaps we have to figure out when was the last time they were tested. Maybe they haven't been tested for a long time. So at least you kind of have somewhat of a baseline. And mm -hmm. then from there, recommending that people get tested again. Um, some people do it in like a month. Some people do it in three months or what have you, whatever makes sense. Like it's kind of like depending on what your provider would say and how long it's been since you've been tested. But that window period can range for a couple of weeks. So definitely maybe like a month or two into it, go into go in and get tested. Both of, both this person and their partner should get tested just to kind of figure out what's going on. We don't know the specific timing of this person. Or right, right. So we don't know how long ago it was. And so if it has been a while, then definitely going in as soon as possible if they can just to go figure out what's What going I've heard on. the last couple of times I've gone in is that the quick HIV test is anything up to three weeks ago. So three weeks and back mm -hmm. and that the gonorrhea and chlamydia test is they say three months and back is the mm -hmm. safe is the safe mode so mm -hmm. um that's what i've heard in my recent trips to planned parenthood yeah and, and that's a, that's where it can be sometimes it can show up earlier than that so it's possible to show up within one to two weeks yeah. in certain situations but in terms of other times it can take up to 12 weeks for some people so even if say you get tested before that three month mark they may recommend that you get tested again um, so if these people once this uh this information came out. Mm -hmm. If they um, haven't had sex with each other since then, mm -hmm. should they wait months? They, they should, should they definitely use protection until they know? And what if they have been having sex with each other right. and already? How how would you navigate right. how, what they should move forward in terms of like rebuilding trust in yeah. their intimate life separate from the 
piece of paper of okay right. or no. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, from the standpoint of should they be intimate with each other, I think that, you know, definitely using protection would be important just to make sure that, you know, even if there was a situation where, say, if the partner did contract something, that it's not something that's passed on to um, the the other partner in that sense. But I also think, too, it's like you're trying to navigate, like, where, what are, what are the things or feelings that came behind her having this other partner? Um, and what are the feelings behind it also being unprotected too? Like what, what was she feeling in that moment? Mm -hmm. At least that, um, that inspired her to be and you know, to engage with this person or what have you. So I feel like those are kind of things that they may, may need to work through and that she needs to kind of bring mm -hmm. to the conversation too, so that they can figure out what, what is, is there something missing in our relationship? And that's where that came from. Or is it just like something that is within her that she needs to explore and that that's this is opening the conversation for that to happen um and so it's kind of a lot of spending time together and really having a lot of conversation too um and you know kind of going back to the things that i feel like were helpful for them in the past in terms of building trust with mm -hmm. each other and like having those points of vulnerability with each other um in that sense so kind of working through that at least in that sense and definitely making sure to protect themselves in the meantime too would be helpful and if they haven't then like i said either way both folks should get tested depending on when the last time they were tested anyway so i just want to give a shout out to working through something like this yeah um just i think i i've known friends for whom it's just any version of this kind of infidelity is like immediate make or break instead yeah. of like well what's going on here and how can we address right. it maybe it's indicative that that the original couple shouldn't be together and yeah. that will come out over the course of that but i think i think it's just the statistics of how how many people mm -hmm. have other partners even when the intention truly is to be monogamous you know it might be a deal breaker for me honestly to give that side of the to, to give that side of the equation like um I hear where you're coming from on saying that there's a shout out to working through and that sort of trust and bond that that shows is, um, is, is, is huge. But I, I mean, I know that I personally would, uh, we can cut this part out. I, no, keep okay. going. Uh, uh, that sort of, wow. That sort of violation of trust is really, really, mm -hmm. really huge. Yeah. So especially the unprotected yeah. part. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, honesty and trust are utmost. And so I know that I would have a very difficult time working through this again and building up something. And it's, 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 it's amazing to even attempt. I think yeah. that that's something that would be, that I don't even know that I would have the strength to attempt that. Yeah. yeah. And it's good to be able to be honest about that too. And I think that's where kind of this comes from is like mm -hmm. really figuring out whether you can, like, you know, figuring out for you, whether that type of if a, you feel like that is a violation of trust and if it is like whether you can come back from it, a lot of people have a lot of difficulty coming back from a violation of trust like that. So even yeah. if folks stay together, they're still wondering, is this happening again? Are they out with someone else? Or uh -huh. like, you know, that it, it often can turn into something that kind of spirals, but I do know people that have attempted to try to work through it. And even if you attempt and you feel like it doesn't work, then you know, at least you tried to see if it was something else that was going on mm -hmm. or it's something that's kind of within the actual fundamental like fabric of your relationship that yeah. is yeah. something that you're not on the same page with. And so, you know, I don't, and I totally hear you. I, I do think that it, it's a lot of hard work and you have to really be invested in it and feel like it's going to, um, it's going to be for the best, you know what I mean? In terms of making, trying to make that work, but also being like, that's just not something that I can really engage with emotionally too. And so yeah. 
there's no right answer on that. People kind of have to figure out for themselves in terms of whether they can come back from that or not. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Good luck for sure. And definitely make sure you all get tested. And also even too, just talking about that, like when, you know, whether that comes to, if it's not a deal breaker too, but being like, okay, if I am going to be with someone else that I'm going to make sure it's protected. So I'm not bringing that mm-hmm. back to you. Cause that can be, you know, there can be parts of this where, right, right. It's yeah. putting in what, what does that mean? If, if that's the, if that's the thought process or that wasn't a part of the thought process when you had this other partner is that whatever could be going on could be something that I could be endangering my partner with. Yeah. Um, and so that is something that they need to talk about and to see yeah. how they both feel about that. And if that was something that, you know, this person thought about, um, in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Next question. I've been falling in love with this amazing guy. He and I talked about safety before hooking up and he shared that a previous girlfriend may have been exposed to HPV when she was still with him. I'm not sure what to do with that information. I appreciate that he shared this, but it means that we've chosen not to be naked together yet, just to be on the safe side, even though we really, really, really want each other and want to go further. I'm having a hard time finding information that gives me a clear understanding of the risks. I don't want to punish him for being honest with me, but I also don't want to get HPV. What should I do? Oh man, this bewilders me too, and I wish that I... I wish that the vaccine had been much more readily available when I was younger. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And HPV is tricky. It's it's hard to explain and it's hard to understand sometimes for folks too. And I mean, there's still things that I'm learning about it myself, even though I talk about it a lot, like during work and other things like that. But with, with HPV, the thing is, is that it's something that you can get from just skin to skin contact. So even just rubbing together genitally in that sense. And so because it's something that's as easy to get, it's something that like, I've heard different estimations. I've heard about 50% of people who've been sexually active have been exposed to HPV at some point. I've heard up to 80% of people. And so it's the most common one, at least in terms of that, because it's so easy to get. But the thing is, is depending on your age and your immune system, it's something that your body can clear up. So, you know, there's low risk strains that can potentially turn into warts. So that could be genital warts, or if it's something that's HPV in the throat or other part of the body, that it could be warts in that space too. So in the throat and the anus, et cetera. Um, and then there's the high risk strains that could potentially turn into types of cancer. So we talk a lot about cervical cancer um, or what have you. And so just because someone may have, um, and so if we're talking about this is the only folks that do have um, at right now, the most of the tests that people are doing in terms of doing pap smears and so taking actual cells from the cervix and so um just because you've been exposed to it doesn't mean that it will turn into cancer so it's something that your body could clear up in a year so we've had folks that have had genital warts and then a year later they don't have it anymore because your immune system is able to clear it up Uh it's just a matter of if it does persist for longer than that then it could be something that depending on the type of strain could turn into and it's so often asymptomatic right right I mean, yeah. So, so, so many people have been exposed or even have right. it and they have it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So most people don't know because it's like if you're not presenting with the warts then and you're not necessarily getting past them, you're not going to know what's going on. So you could have it. You could pass it on to someone else um, and vice versa. So it's like if you've had sex with someone that's had sex with someone else, you've pretty much had HPV. <laughs> the likelihood is that you've already been exposed. Um, and so... 
um, the most that folks can do is really making sure that you are protected when um, you are intimate with folks. And so that means, um, you know, during oral sex, during vaginal sex, anal sex, making sure there's protection there. Um, and if you are up to 26, definitely getting the vaccine, the, and it's available to regardless of folks' gender, you can get the vaccine, um, getting the HPV vaccine, which is great. Um, and then also, you know, if you are someone who does, you can get um, pap smears. So if you do have a cervix, you can get pap smears. Um, and depending on your age, you may need to get it every year or every three years, depending on if you've had an abnormal pap before. So. Um, it's is there so no way to though. test males for HIV? So there's no FDA approved test uh, for males. So the only way that people actually, in terms of males, in terms of finding out they do is if they present with warts, whether it's on, um, on the penis or what have you, or if they present with them anally or something like that. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately that's a problem <laughs> because there's no way to really figure out, um, at least for guys, if that's the case, but more so you can find out if you're um, a woman, if you do have an abnormal pap smear, for example. What's that test the FDA hasn't approved yet? I, that's a great question. I actually don't know. I actually okay. don't know. I haven't heard. I don't know if there is one that they just haven't approved yet. Lick but, the shark. And right. <laughs> right. The shark turns blue. Who knows what it could be. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the unfortunate part of it. And so it's tricky too, like I said, because it's something that's so common. You can get it so easily and we talk about it a lot and it doesn't help that, you know, sometimes when people refer to it in pop culture, like on certain TV shows, they've talked about it, but they've talked about it in a factually, it's, it was inaccurate. <laughs> and so that's problematic too. So what the information that sometimes we do get isn't accurate about HPV. And oftentimes, for example, if say someone does have an abnormal pap smear, they're not really explained what that means. And so there's so much more education that needs to be done. So people don't have to walk out. I had a 16 year old girl who was told that she has HPV and she was like crying in my office for an hour and it wasn't at my clinic. She went somewhere else and they told her that she had HPV and didn't explain to her what that really meant is that, you know, you probably could have cleared up in two days because you're young and your immune system is doing ex is doing that for you. So it's, it's kind of hard um, is that there's not as much education around it um, in terms of what to do. And some people, depending on the situation, um, you know, you can ask your provider if they, um, about the vaccine still, if, if you're 26 or over or something like that, they can mm -hmm. really see. So but back to this specific question, yeah. if this, if a person came into your office and asked this specific situation, yeah. well, how would you advise them? I mean, I would tell them that a, I think it's great that they had that conversation to yeah. begin with. And I like think he was upfront. Yeah. Upfront yeah. about it too. And I do think that, you know, the fact that they're having that conversation, they have the opportunity to kind of move forward in a way that they can protect themselves. And so, you know, at least if with him, he can't get a test for it. So there's no way to really know whether he currently is presenting with it. I mean, like I said, the most that um, she can do is, like I said, making sure that they are using protection if they are um, gonna be intimate with each other, seeing if she can get the vaccine because whether it's that partner or any other partner that she may have in the future can help to protect her um, against these strains that could lead to warts or could lead to a cancer eventually in life. So getting the vaccine um, and then just being at least kind of taking a breather about it because you know, you're know you intervening and, and you're actually asking the questions beforehand and kind of getting the information from folks to figure out what is really going on and is this something that I need to be worried about. So I feel like it's something that can be a part of being worried generally about your sexual health and protecting yourself from sexually transmitted infections. But I think that 
um, you know, as long as you're following directions and kind of doing the preventative steps that you can, it's something that you should be able to breathe a little bit easier about. And even in the event that say someone did have an abnormal pap smear. And so they said that that means that if you do have an abnormal pap, oftentimes they say that that's an indication that you do have HPV, knowing that they'll probably have you either come back in a year to make sure that if it's abnormal again, or just kind of continue with your routine or have you or get a colposcopy. But either way, knowing that possible that your immune system can do the trick for you and with all this and i i obviously don't want to make light of of any of this yeah but i also just want to acknowledge that um that sex is a risk like any, i mean that that yeah. we never even with people communicating perfectly yeah. and getting and getting tested regularly you don't know you know until you like there's that three week to six month right. window of when right. and so i also I also think um, that there is a point of just acknowledging that and weighing the weighing the risks against the benefits. And if you're, Definitely. I think if you're if you're being responsible and communicative and using protection when it makes sense, like um, that, I, I I think that it's, you, since you can't ever know perfectly, right. if you're really doing the best you can, right. then yeah. embracing some of that risk can be yeah. worth it. And that in Absolutely. this couple's situation i agree the amount of love and responsibility shown to bring that up beforehand yeah Yeah. i feel like that's vanishingly rare and not to be taken lightly so it's like like as you're adding in your cost benefit analysis like hey that is that is a huge thing that just that that was and oh my god get tested every six months and talk about all this stuff but just like yeah we it's impossible to be totally sure about absolutely yeah and so it sounds like like i said they're setting a positive tone by already opening the doors for communication about this to begin with and so you know it's as you said it's it's a rarity that sometimes that you would have that conversation too and so that's why i feel like it's important for you know talking about hpv i feel like a lot of times it's it's a conversation that oftentimes is relegated to women or men who have sex with men and that's most Uh of the time the folks but everyone should be having these conversations because you know maybe her partner had he had some more information about that too maybe he would feel he would have some understanding of it as well in addition to you know figuring out too so i think that everyone should learn about Jeez. these things. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know we're running short on time. There was one more question we were hoping to yeah. get to. Is it okay if we just kind of like read the question and then quick response from Adwa? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm a bisexual hard. female and I've mostly been in relationships with women in the past, but now I'm in a committed relationship with a man. We want to be fluid bonded soon, but I don't, uh, but I know I don't want to risk pregnancy. I'm considering getting an IUD, but I am worried about putting anything artificial into me and I don't know if I want anything messing with my hormones. Also, my periods are already heavy, and I don't want them to get worse. Are these worries founded, or am I just being neurotic? Also, what's the deal with vasectomies? I hear they are easy and reversible. Is that true? (laughs) No. (laughs) There's a lot there, for sure. And I think, um, for one, no, it's not about... It's not being neurotic to actually just want to understand, like, what you're walking into when you're talking about, like, birth control methods and those types of things. And when I have to, I love fluid bonded. I've never heard that before. I like like the term of being fluid bonded, at least in that sense. But, you know, I think that there's a couple things to think about with the IUD. For some people feel like 
that's a really great method for them because it's the most effective birth control method. Um, and you know, it's something on a day to day, you don't really have to do a lot. So you kind of just go about your life. It's like a little T-shaped object that they insert inside the uterus. Um, there's two kinds. There's one with hormones, one without. And so, you know, it's definitely something that I recommend that, you know, going in and talking to a provider about for sure, just to see if, um, you know, if you are considering it, are there any medical indications that would make it so that it doesn't make sense for um, that person to consider it? But I do think it's it's like in terms of recommendations, a lot of folks actually recommend the IUD for young people because it may be a situation where even if you're not sure what you may want to do in terms of parenting, it may not be something that you want in the immediate. And mm -hmm. so can protect you for five to 10 years, depending on which one you're considering. And, and so removable if you change your mind, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you can remove it whenever you want. So if you decide in a year, you're like, Oh, I'm done with this. I'm over it. You can go to a provider and they can have it removed for you too. So you have the flexibility of deciding what to do with it. And especially for example, if you're someone who has heavy periods, the one with hormones, it's a very low dose because it doesn't have to go very far. Um, so some people who have heavy periods actually do recommend that you deal with hormones just because it makes your period lighter and shorter. Um, and so the one without hormones, some people's periods can stay the same. Some people have periods that may be a little bit more intense sometimes. So um, that would be a consideration for what your period looks like already, too. Um, so, yeah, so the IUD could be a great option. Um, at least from the pregnancy prevention point and from the fluid bonded point, of course, you know, we already talked about STIs, going to throw that in there, <laughs> making sure that um, the partners have, have discussed that and also talked about like making sure they're both getting tested if that's the idea is that um, condoms may not be in the picture. That's what I'm assuming fluid bonded right. means, at yeah, least yeah, in that yeah. sense. My, so, yeah. my understanding yeah. is that if, it's, uh, if people have been together using protection but are going to decide to be... Uh, to not use protection anymore of them. They're right. really bonded. Right. And so, yeah, just making sure folks are good on the Yeah, making sure the they're SCI tested front, and, yeah. and, and have the same agreement the about what yeah. to do. But yeah, no, and, and I think that, yeah, the IUD can be great for some folks. Some people have not had positive experience with I feel like that's true with every birth control method, is that you really have to see what makes sense for you because everyone's experience can be different. Um, and so kind of exploring and figuring out what makes the most sense. But, you know, the IUD is an option. So there's a ton of other options, too. That sometimes people don't know about so you know going and talking to a provider there may be other options that may even you might like more than the IUD as well cool. so and yeah. the vasectomies question yes so on the vasectomies question so vasectomies yes so if we're comparing like um, permanent sterilization for women versus permanent sterilization for men at least in that sense so vasectomies typically are supposed to be something that should be more permanent there have been times where people have tried to reverse them and maybe have been successful with that but the idea that it's supposed to be something that's more permanent at least in terms of having the vasectomy but with it it's something that's usually outpatient it doesn't require as long a recovery time it's actually cheaper than a tubal ligation also too um, so at least that but it's more so in the line of and the same thing with tubal ligation ideally something that's so really cheaper. only if you're like really really right. really extra right because i don't sure. think people can just be like oh i kind of want to get a vasectomy today and then maybe i'm going to undo it and then i'll go back and get another one later or what have you but yeah that's my understanding is that it's something that um, I think it can be, but I don't think that's something that they're usually recommending is that it's something that should be reversed. Um, so, yeah, so definitely it's something that in this country, people don't talk about as much, but when we're talking about other countries too, sometimes vasectomy rates are a lot higher. Um, and so oftentimes it falls on the, on the onus of the woman to be the one who's permanently sterilized, at least in that sense. Mm. So, yeah. All right. All right. Nice. Quickies. Yeah.
Shall I go first? Sure. Okay. Well, I want to give a shout out to uh, four movie theaters in Sweden, which <laughs> uh, have started putting up Bechdel test ratings for movies. Yeah. And the Bechdel test, if you don't know, is a is a test uh, uh, that uh, the cartoonist Alison Bechdel came up with, or um, at least popularized. She attributes it to her friend to ask three questions about a piece of art, which is, or uh, so the three rules are: one, it has to have more than one woman in it; two, who talk to each other. Three about something other than a man, <laughs> um, and it's alarming and sad and, and really, really angering how few pieces of popular culture, especially mass-produced popular culture, actually meet these three rules. And so, these some small movie theaters in Sweden have started to put up an addition to whatever rating, also a Bechdel test rating for if it passes or how how well it passes. So, rock on, more of that. Awesome. Um, it's a good start. Yeah, it's a good it start. Is. It is a good start. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I fear that my quickie isn't so quick. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, man. So, you know, Jillian and I were just on this tour driving across the whole country. We had several days where we would drive for 12 hours. And so we wanted to get a free audiobook. So we were looking into what would be like so many hours. That would, and we would also feel like when we're really tired, we might still want to listen to it. So we picked Fifty Shades of Grey because it comes up so much in terms of like as, like as a sexuality educator, what do you think about this or is it doing more harm than good? And I just, I, I kept trying to speak to it without actually having experienced the thing. And so now I've experienced the thing. <laughs> oh, have I ever. How was the experience of the thing? the thing? Well, driving while listening to, <laughs> to erotica is a very interesting experience. Um, but also, oh man, the writing is even more atrocious than I <laughs> was warned about. I mean, Salman Rushdie is kind of a jerk, even though I love his writing, but he said it uh, makes uh, that Fifty Shades of Grey makes Twilight look like war and peace, which, wow. like, that's not an exaggeration. And yet, I'm super compelled by it. And it's like I can't look away, kind of like Sarah Palin. Like, you just like, can't, like, I must, must, like, just keep obsessing. Yeah. And, but also, I just, I've, I've read... So, well, I didn't finish it. We got two-thirds of the way through. And I don't think I will finish it. I read about how it ends. And I'm not going to read the other two books. But The 47 through um, 48, 49, 50, you haven't gotten to those two books. <laughs> yeah, no, I just, I just got to 46. Okay. But, but, um, but um, wait, my two favorite lines I have to... So, Anastasia. I like my women sentient and receptive. And the other one is, I am 50 shades of fucked up. Oh, wow. um, it's really, so, that's, that's 51 shades of bad so there is there is stuff to mock about this yeah. I think that everyone agrees that the writing is atrocious um, and it's also really compelling and I don't think that it's useful I've read so many articles that are kind of like shouting matches about it's doing good or it's doing bad and I ultimately just don't think it's useful to look at it that way of um, is, it, is it totally negative is it totally positive like I, I think saying like what does it open up or what does it shut down or, or, and so certain things that I did like about it, I mean, it is really compelling. It, I was hooked and kept wanting to listen to it on these long drives. And I think, um, there is the, the thing that could be said to be positive, which is just so many people in the world have maybe I, the majority of people, I don't know the statistics have desires that go beyond the strictly vanilla. Mm -hmm. And there's so little in mainstream pop culture right. that really reflects that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's kind of no surprise that this got as popular as it did, because mm -hmm. I think that it might be a small step to giving people permission to think about the range of what they're into. And I think 
I think that that's awesome. And I, I am, am excited in, in a way that then it got that mainstream. I mean, it wouldn't hurt if it was slightly more well-written, but you know, it's, it's still like, it's, I, I do think that, and, and I was, I was scrutinizing every single step along the way. And I think, I don't know if either of you have read it, but I, mm-hmm. on, on the consent front, it's actually pretty great. Mm-hmm. Like they talk about things and he does really seem to care about her, her pleasure and her orgasm. It doesn't, awesome. she also comes <laughs> so quickly that he doesn't have to really, <laughs> and all the time, which that's awesome. And some women do, and that's great, yeah. but that's certainly not the majority of women, but, right. but it does, he does really, uh, seem to care about her pleasure from my perspective and so kudos to that kudos to consent talk like there's there's one time that he he uh kisses her in the elevator without her permission and then apologizes like and said because everything else is really yeah negotiated i'm not thoroughly convinced that anastasia is really doing this out of owning her own desires Mm -hmm. rather than wanting to please him but she is checked in with about it yeah and whenever she expresses ambivalence, he's... So anyhow, I don't know. I haven't finished it. Maybe it all goes <laughs> south from there. But so that I, that all I see is, like, fairly positive. But then, I mean, the the critiques are really well-founded, too, and that, like, it's really disappointing. At, 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 at best, it could be said to be disappointingly archetypical, this billionaire, handsome man, and that this, like, clunky, younger, virginal girl. And that's just... And, and perpetuating the the power dynamic that one would like first knee jerk reaction expect, and I think so. So at best, it's it's disappointingly archetypical. At worst, I think that it it perpetuates really harmful, dangerous myths about people who are into BDSM. Mm-hmm. It's very it becomes very apparent that Christian Grey is. And it's a little bit of a spoiler, but I think it's no no shocker um, that it's very apparent that Christian is has the desires that he does because of. Um, He's a vampire. Rough, well, He's a vampire. well, I mean, it's based on vampire character, but <laughs> because of um, because of childhood trauma, and as mm. he says, uh, I'm Fifty Shades of fucked up Anastasia, mm. and so like that's why he doesn't like to be touched. And so, I just, I mean, of course, there are people who are fucked up who are also into BDSM, but there are so many people who are who come to kinky practices from a place of wholeness and celebration Absolutely. and self knowledge that's not rooted in in yeah. trauma or fucked up in this at all. Yeah. And there's plenty of people who who are into strictly vanilla sex and are really fucked up. Absolutely. And so it just, I think, you know, so this, that this happens to be very mainstream and is displaying somebody who admits his fucked up and that his BDSM desires are rooted in that. I see that as so sorely disappointing and, and, and really harmful in ways that, that very possibly outweigh the positivity of, of being something mainstream and kinky. Mm-hmm. So I've really, as a parent, I've really complex feelings about it. And that was so that was a long you, and juicy quickie. You don't feel woo. You don't feel black or white about it. You would say. Oh feel, God, you feel a little. Gray. Oh, oh, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> so I'm not endorsing it exactly or ranting about it. There's a little bit of both in that. Encouraging people to maybe check it out and develop their own feelings. No? Yeah, if you can handle it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yes. Yes. Ultimately, yes. I, okay. That's yes. I'll... Um. So I guess for mine, I just literally finished a week long training all about 
breastfeeding. So I'm going to give some mad mm. kudos to breastfeeding because I feel like it's something Yay. that I, and I talk about how I'm so a poster child of someone who is not breastfed and not to say that everyone who's not breastfed is like this, but some of these things that we see in terms of when uh, babies are breastfed, they're less likely to get sick as I'm. So I had ear infections all the time. I had asthma as a child, you know, all sorts of other things too. And so I think breastfeeding is something that's so it's really revolutionary, I feel like, in a way, but it's so natural. It's something that's just kind of breast doing what they are intended to do. And it's really awesome. And I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot more that people have to learn about it and talk about it. So I've been talking about it everywhere. And so my roommates have been making fun of me about breasts and I'm a breast expert now. And I, I, so apparently I talk about penises all day at work, which is not true, but really I do that. And now I talk all about breasts, but I feel like, you know, exploring that as an option and giving people information on that beforehand, like during prenatal care, rather than being like, Hey, here's something that you should do. You just had a baby and all these other things are being overwhelmed with you. But knowing that there's a lot of benefits to the baby and to mom about breastfeeding too. And it's free and it's there and with the right education and support that people can really be successful in it and if not then you know there's ways that people can supplement in ways that are helpful but you know whatever conversations that we can to empower people to be able to breastfeed and stuff so definitely checking that out there's a lot of good resources on it too what are some of your favorite resources so um uh let's see so the um center for breastfeeding with the healthy children project they do a lot of training and education on that for community breastfeeding educators too the cdc actually has a ton of data on breastfeeding as well and so there's a lot of um there's a lot of information there and also with the affordable care act part of that is that um employers with um employees with companies that have employees of 50 or more, they actually are encouraged to make sure that there's space within the work, um, work on the outside of a bathroom for folks to be able to breastfeed. So there's more even just kind of like community support that people need and employer support to encourage people to continue to breastfeed through exclusively six months is what the recommendation is. So, you know, I know that there's certain situations where people can, but oftentimes there's not as many as people think. So there's a lot of real ways that we can empower people to have like a whole lot of like autonomy over their birthing experience that allow them to be able to breastfeed. So that's part of my reproductive justice, birthing justice um, standpoint is I want to uplift breastfeeding and do what I can to uplift folks so that they can at least learn more about it and see if it makes sense for them. So high five breastfeeding. Awesome. Hey everyone, this is Jillian from Bonabana Bonabo. We've just finished up the Love Songs for the Rest of Us tour with shows in New Orleans and Jackson, Mississippi and Asheville, North Carolina. We had the privilege of playing for folks in the Lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans for a group of women, um, their pastors and their wives and partners from a a Christian LGBTQ-friendly church in Jackson, Mississippi, and for a group of girls between the ages of 13 and 15 at a school in North Carolina. And these were some really incredible shows to play at the end of the tour. Um, I think they're all people who you very likely may not have met if we had just been traveling around the country in some other circumstance and it was really powerful to play those shows right before returning to New York and playing a couple of shows for friends and family and people who we've known for a long time who supported us in this project. Um, It was really just a reminder once again that people are always full of surprises whether we 
expect them to be because they're complete strangers or if we know them really well. Um, and also that we always have common ground with people again, whether we think of them as complete strangers or not. Um, and yeah, just to get to sit in that space and hear from so many different people in such a short amount of time is something that we're just beginning to wrap our minds around. Uh, but it's, it's good to be back home and have a little time to process and think about it and figure out how we can best get back out on the road again to hear from even more people. And right now we have a song we want to share with you that's been part of all of the shows on this tour. And the recording is not not the best because it's a a live recording on a cell phone, uh, but we're really eager to share the song with you, so we think it'll it'll work for this purpose. I'm a doula, which means that I am with women, supporting them mentally, physically, and emotionally while they are in labor and giving birth. And there's a lot I've learned about childbirth during this time. You know, it's so much different than what I ever saw in movies on TV where we see a woman who's, you know, her water's broken and everyone's rushing to the hospital. And uh, it usually doesn't happen that fast. Um, so it is a very an intense and dramatic event that I do feel very privileged to get to be a part of for so many people. And yeah, just amongst the many things that I've learned since I first started attending births, one thing that's really been amazing to me is to realize while there's certainly pain involved in childbirth, I can't deny that, it's not as if I'm seeing women experience this pain as if they're being hit by a car or having an avalanche fall on them, which I think is how I often imagined it. Um, But instead, I find that it's more akin to the pain of running a long distance race and that it's very arduous and it takes a lot of endurance. And unlike running a long distance race, you can't stop and quit at the middle or near the end when you're tired. So it's certainly very, very, very difficult thing to do, but something that I see women doing rather than it being something that's happening to them. And that's been a very powerful thing to realize And something else that I've realized in my time as a doula is the role that sex plays during labor. I'll often encourage couples early on in labor to have sex to help move the labor along. And of course, not every baby is conceived by a man and a woman having sex. So more simply put, this is the idea that if a woman has someone with her who she can make out with, who can give her a massage, someone who she just has a lot of love and trust with and is comfortable with, it can really help her relax and in turn feel less fear, which is really most conducive to being able to release and have a baby. And going along with this, I've been really amazed to learn that there are women who've experienced orgasm when giving birth. And this really makes a lot of sense in a way because oxytocin, the hormone that our brains release during orgasm, is also the hormone that causes contractions when women are in labor. And it's the hormone that helps women bond with their babies. We call it the love hormone, oxytocin. And I bring this up not because I think that women should expect to have orgasms when they're giving birth or try to have orgasms when they're giving birth or think that a 
successful birth involves having an orgasm, I'd say that it's a pretty, it's a pretty rare occurrence, but I still think it's very telling that we never really hear this talked about in a culture where it's very appropriate to talk about how much pain your mother was in when she gave birth to you, you know, that she doesn't even call you on her birthday, on your birthday and what a difficult experience it was. Um, but that if anyone was to ever say, Oh, well, my mother actually had an orgasm when she gave birth to me, you know, experienced pain, but also experienced pleasure that that would be a really disgusting and inappropriate thing to say. So I think that's something that we need to look more closely at in how we talk about women and their bodies and childbirth. So I wrote this song, uh, inspired by the work and teachings of Ina Mae Gaskin, who's kind of the grandmother of modern midwifery in the United States. And yes, I hope that you will enjoy it and it will get stuck in your heads and you'll talk to other people about it, whether or not you yourself are a person who can get pregnant or wants to get pregnant or ever plans to get pregnant. I think it's important for pregnancy and childbirth to be out in conversation outside of spaces only for those who, and not only for those who are about to have babies. So enjoy. We 
we say this so often, but I feel like we can't possibly say it enough. We are thrilled and grateful and so excited that you're in this conversation with us. And if you want to respond to that crowdsource question about when is it okay to talk to a cute stranger, please write to us or call us by December 7th at the latest. And remember to subscribe on iTunes, find us on Facebook and Twitter, be in touch with us with any thoughts, complaints, questions, and any of those places or at sexorsmartpeople.com. And a huge heartfelt thanks again to Ajua and to Owen O'Malley, our awesome mix engineer. And on our next episode, oh my goodness, I'm very excited to have Laura Portwood Stacer joining us. She is a professor at NYU and her research focuses on the intersections between political identity, subculture, and everyday resistance in the context of consumer culture. Her writing has appeared in many places, including the Journal of Consumer Culture, Sexualities, and Feminist Theory. And her first book, which I love, is called Lifestyle Politics and Radical Activism, and it explores the complexity of the idea that our personal choices around family and love are inherently political. So we look forward to that and we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now. And now we say, what is the sexiest? Ooh. I can give me one second. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 No. <laughs> um, Very smart people. <laughs> um, um, bird-like features. <laughs> You're into that. <laughs> <laughs> Women who sing like. <laughs> All right. Just leave that in. <laughs> and let us go. Do you have that yeah, I'm gonna go for it. You say bird-like features. Yes. <laughs> Alright, so, I was just in New Orleans. Anyone of any gender who plays any instrument and lives in New Orleans is the sexiest. Sing. <laughs> People who look like they should be at Ren Faire are the sexiest. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna say warmth is the sexiest as a native Chicago, and it's mad cold in New York right now, so I'm longing for that warmth, and I know it's really sexy because I've been lacking it.